Good morning. My name is Greg Shokas, and I'm a member here, and I'll be reading the scripture this morning. It's found in Daniel 5, 17 to 23. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body as wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all of your ways, you have not honored. Thank you. You can be seated. For anyone who doesn't know me, my name is Roy Dardich. I'm also one of the pastors here, and uh, it's my joy and privilege to lead you guys in prayer today. So please join me. Don't just listen to me, but pray with me as we go to God together in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word and uh, what you have already spoken through your word just in, in hearing it read um, and what is evident to people just in hearing it read. I, I can't wait to hear what else you have for us as it's preached. Um, Lord, in light of, of this passage today, I praise you uh, for being the ruler of all rulers the architect and demolisher of kingdoms and empires that you can use even the rebellious, sinful people and governments to accomplish your purposes on the earth. Thank you. I praise you for that. Or I confess that I, and really I know I'm not alone, we tend to trust what we can see. We, can, we tend to trust the human powers that are evident in our daily lives more than we trust your eternal, supernatural, unseen kingdom and power. It's just what comes naturally, and it's so easy to slide into. I confess that on our collective behalf, Lord. Thank you that the day is coming when you will judge all of humanity, 
And that through Christ, some, even many, Lord willing, all of us, will be found not only not guilty, but righteous with Jesus' righteousness in that judgment. I I barely understand that, but that is so awesome, Lord. I thank you and praise you for that. Holy Spirit, please help us trust you whatever comes, whoever's in power, whatever the economy is like. Give us an unshakable eternal perspective in the here and now, please, in Jesus' name, please. Lord, I lift up uh, our governing authorities, particularly the U.S. Senate today, Father, the Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, the Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, the Florida Senators Rick Scott and Marco Rubio, and really the rest of the Senators in that that, uh, legislative body. Please give them humility to serve and represent the people that sent them to D.C. Please give them integrity to resist the pull towards self-service and things that would displease you. And empower the believers in the Senate and use them to draw unbelievers to you in those circles which are largely inaccessible to regular people uh, because they tend to be set apart and protected a lot of the time. So please use the believers who are in there to draw them to Jesus at least in part, and, and, uh, and please encourage and protect the witness and integrity of those believers in that position. Lord, as far as praying for other churches, I want to lift up Clearwater Community Church today. Thank you uh, that, that we have a good relationship with them, that we have uh, the opportunity to, to partner with them in, of sorts with Harriet's Food Pantry. Please bless that ministry and the, and the efforts there. Lord, I lift up... Uh, their pastor, Phil Burgraff, and and their other pastoral staff. Uh, please give them uh, wisdom and discernment and insight in how to best uh, shepherd the people there. Um, Lord, I lift up their, their sermon series on First and Second Samuel. Please illuminate their understanding of your word and help them to know and love you better and follow you closer and become more like Jesus through that time in your word together. And please bless the sabbatical routine that they have put in place for their pastors, and maybe even others. I'm not sure if it goes further than that. Uh, Please use it to deepen their relationship with you and prepare them for more effective ministry and longevity in ministry at Clearwater Community Church. Lord, I lift up uh, the country of Somalia and the persecuted believers there. Uh, I I lift up uh, Prime Minister Hamza Abdi-Bar, and, and I pray that you would, you would get a hold of his heart and draw him to Jesus, first and foremost, because that might put his life at risk, but it would also be a huge impact on, on things there. Um, Lord, I pray the believers who are risking everything to follow you will have the strength to persevere in their faith despite the dangers that they face day in and day out. Um, please protect the Christians who are at risk from Islamic militants and even their own families and communities. Please provide isolated believers with opportunities to gather for fellowship and to encourage one another. Please give them wisdom and courage to know how to live out their faith and and how secretive they need to be and how upfront they can be. Just lead them in those very sensitive areas of wisdom. Um, Please provide the believers there uh, who are fleeing the country to preserve their life. Please provide for them because when you're running from home and you have what you can carry, there's, there's only so far that provision goes. They need shelter, they need food, they need water. Please provide for them, lead them to help. Um, and again, please give Prime Minister Hamza Abdibar uh, the wisdom to know how to mobilize their military to, pr- to protect his people from the militant groups that will 
kind of just attack at random at times. Um, Lord, for our own body, I lift up our sister Karen Entoven as she begins to explore dating um, and even even uh, looking into resources uh, online and stuff. Uh, please give her wisdom and discernment and protection as she does this, and please help her to welcome thoughtful ideas from her brothers and sisters about how uh, to to engage you in this process, how to do this well. And please help us, as her brothers and sisters, to be thoughtful with the advice and interactions about this, that it would be absolutely loving and not prideful uh, or, or thinking we have all the answers, because we definitely do not. Um, and Lord, finally, I pray for our value of, of mission. Acts 1.8 says we... The believers would, and so we do receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, comes into us, to be your witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Lord, here we are at the ends of the earth from Jerusalem. Please empower us to be on mission when we're together and when we're scattered. Whether we're in our neighborhoods, our jobs, our schools, our our teams, our clubs, our whatever, at the grocery store, at the gas station, at the amusement park, please help us be on mission for you. Like we're sent out like special forces, representing you and looking for the opportunities to accomplish your mission in the hearts of people around us and the interactions we get to partake in. Lord, glorify yourself, please, not just with our surrendering to you and you being used by you, but help please also use us to see people come into the kingdom, add people to your kingdom through our ministry that you're leading us and empowering us to. Not just so that there's more people here, but there's more people in the kingdom. And please use us to disciple those people too. We love you. We trust you for all of this. Come, Jesus, come. We long for your kingdom and we want to see it clearer here. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we live in an anxious age. Uh, according to the latest statistics, one in five Americans experience uh, anxiety each year, and 50% of those between the ages of 18 and 24 experience symptoms of a major anxiety disorder. Uh, and the reasons for this, of course, are multifaceted, uh, but to me, at least three significant reasons stand out. Uh, first, we're connected more than ever by the Internet to things going on across the globe. And we learn about global events, including crises that happen that are often beyond our control. And, of course, access to information about horrible events that we can do nothing about is a recipe for anxiety. Second, in our own nation, we've reached a point where every four years, predictably, the doomsayers come out saying, if you don't get this person elected, whoever their particular candidate is, all things are going to fall apart. The world as we know it's going to end. And as that rhetoric increases, of course, it's natural that we might feel anxiety about elections every four years. And it seems like the doomsayers, uh, doomsayers never hibernate either. And so there's now kind of a low-grade anxiety that persists all the time. And finally, beyond all these kinds of global and political events, there are the kinds of anxieties that are wired into the desires of every human heart. The natural anxiety produced from our fear that we would not be known and loved, but rather known and rejected. That we would be tried and found wanting. 
And so the question I want to raise for us this morning is what are we to do with all these anxieties that result from global and political events and that result from even the good desires God has given us in our heart? Well, over the last several weeks, we've seen this is exactly the kinds of questions that the book of Daniel is aimed to answer. Daniel was written about into a people who were and living in a land that was not their home and who were forced to live by customs, rules, and beliefs that were not their own. In the life of Daniel and the visions of Daniel, were, uh, we've said have taught these people how to live faithfully and hopefully before their God who never changes. And so we've been encouraged over the last several weeks to prioritize faithfulness over influence, to depend upon God's wisdom rather than human wisdom, to fear God rather than to fear man. And last week we saw to pursue humble confidence in view of God's glory and grace. And so today, in Daniel chapter 5, we see an answer to how we should live when it seems that there is so much to be anxious about. And the answer to that question is primarily hope. Hope is what keeps us going when all seems lost and the world seems dark. And so as we consider Daniel chapter 5, we'll see that this text is tailored to teach us to hope in the kingdom of God more than the kingdom of men. In particular, we'll see three reasons we should hope in the kingdom of God more than the kingdom of men. First, because his kingdom is more precious than it appears. Second, because history has taught us that God rules the kingdoms of men. And finally, because God is the ultimate judge who gives the kingdoms of men to whomever he wills. But before we dive into God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do confess to you that we are an anxious people. Whether it's global events, national crises, or our own personal insecurities, our hearts are filled with fear and anxiety. And we pray as we come to your word this morning, you would displace our anxiety with hope particularly in Jesus. Help us as we come to your word to understand it, to receive it in faith. Help us to behold our Savior so that we would come to treasure him and love him more. Lord, help me to preach your word clearly, faithfully, and passionately so that we would come out of this place trusting Christ more and be much less anxious. And so it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, if you've not turned there yet, I invite you to open your Bible to Daniel chapter 5. If you don't have one, please use one of the community Bibles under your seat or the seat next to you. That'll help you to follow along. And if you're not familiar with the scriptures, you can find Daniel on page 742 of our community Bibles. You'll be looking for a big, bold number 5. That's a chapter. And if you don't have a Bible, please consider this one our gift to you. We would be absolutely delighted for you to continue to engage God's Word, not just today, but throughout the week. Once you've found Daniel chapter 5, though, take a moment to quietly prepare your own heart to receive God's Word. You know what anxieties and fears plague you. Surrender those to the Lord this morning and ask that He would give you the word of hope He has prepared for you. If you're ready to receive God's word, say, I'm ready. ready. Look at me at verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. 
Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank for them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way. His knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His color changed, and his lords were perplexed. Here we see that we should hope in the kingdom of God more than the kingdoms of men, because his kingdom is more precious than it appears. Because his kingdom is more precious than it appears. Now Daniel 5 opens somewhat surprisingly, introducing us to a new king named Belshazzar. And Belshazzar is described as Nebuchadnezzar's son, and Nebuchadnezzar is described as his father throughout the passage. Yet based upon the historical record, it's unlikely that Belshazzar is literally Nebuchadnezzar's son. But instead, he's a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar, much the way we would say Jesus is the son of David, though he's not David's literal son. He's a descendant from David. But the introduction of Belshazzar uh, to Belshazzar raises attention for us in the text. Because as one scholar points out, until very recently... Belshazzar was thought to be one of those errors in the Bible's understanding of history that led many to doubt its accuracy. For a long time, there was no historical evidence whatsoever that there was a king named Belshazzar who ever reigned in Babylon. But after the discovery and decipherment of cuneiform tablets, we began to learn more and more about this particular period in question. As a result, Belshazzar emerged from the shadows as a definite historical character. And now we have abundant textual witness to the fact that he was the son of Nabonidus. More than that, Belshazzar was co-regent and actually in charge of Babylon's, uh, uh, in charge of Babylon during his father's 10-year absence uh, from the capital city, thus explaining the reference to him as king and also to the invitation to whoever can interpret this dream to be third in command. His father was the king, he's co-regent, and there's a third spot uh, available. And this is one of the many reminders that history and science will often raise questions for us over whether or not the Bible is true and reliable. However, in many cases like this one, what seems like insurmountable evidence against the Bible as being a reliable document actually ends up demonstrating the reliability of the Bible over time when additional evidence is found. And so, listen, if you're someone who struggles with whether or not you can trust the Bible, rely upon the Bible, believe what the Bible has said is true, you may come to places like this where experts and scholars say, nope, this is evidence the Bible's not true. And I want you to hear me. You can have great confidence the Bible is true. Sometimes, the historical and scientific evidence they found actually invite us to examine whether or not we've actually been interpreting the scriptures faithfully. For example, when scientists discovered that the earth was not the center of the universe, did not stand still, but actually was rotating around the sun, that helpfully helped us to realize that we'd been interpreting scripture wrongly. And we corrected that interpretation. 
But other times, there will not be a biblically faithful alternative interpretation. And in cases like that, I want you to say you really can trust the Bible. We really can trust that new evidence will eventually be found to demonstrate that what seems insurmountable, what seems implausible, actually is true. It's happened in the case of the historical evidence for Belshazzar. It's happened in so many discoveries of ancient cities and texts. All of these things again and again confirm what the Bible has said is true and reliable. And so we can trust that what the Bible says eventually will be confirmed to be true. But I also want us to recognize the reason we trust the Bible is not because history or science says it's true. The reason we trust the Bible is because we believe something far crazier. We believe that Jesus, the Son of God, descended, died on a cross, and rose from the grave. And there is no better explanation for him rising from the dead, from the church advancing, for Christianity existing today, than the fact Jesus rose from the dead. All the historical facts everyone agrees upon are not better explained by anything else. And so ultimately we trust the Bible because we believe in the resurrection. And if Jesus really rose from the dead, he really is who he said he was, and he trusted the Bible. So we trust the Bible. Well, now that we've taken this long excursus about this random person that we didn't know about for a very long time, we learn, as the story opens, that Belshazzar is feasting. And this is quite crazy. We learn, not from our text, but from history, that the army of the Persians and Medes are literally at his gate. They have been surrounding his city for quite some time. And yet, Belshazzar is so confident that they will not get past the gates that he's here hosting a feast, celebrating a ritual, throwing a wild party. But as one pastor points out, the Babylonians are completely out of touch with reality. By the end of our passage, the Medes and Persians will have invaded and defeated this king. But this is what sin does and makes us dull. It makes us stupid. And Belshazzar's foolishness continues then when he commands that the vessels that had been taken from the temple of Judah be brought and be used so that his guests could drink from wine. And if you were with us for Daniel 1, you may remember that we said when Babylon defeated Jerusalem and took these vessels, everyone would have realized, everyone would have believed that this meant that the the gods of Babylon were greater than the God of Judah. They would have believed this demonstrated the God of Judah was inferior to all the gods they worshipped. And yet, as we saw in chapter 1, though it appeared these vessels were insignificant and that God was weak, all this actually came about by the sovereign hand of God, who still regarded these apparently insignificant vessels as holy and precious. Not because the vessels were important in and of themselves, but because they had been set apart from common use. That's what holy means, to bring glory and honor and praise to God. And so when Belshazzar brings out Israel's holy vessels that were set apart for worship in God's temple in order to use them not just to drink wine, but also, as verse 4 indicates, to praise the gods of silver and gold and wood and stone, he was engaged in blaspheming God, which is simply the act of dishonoring God through our speech or actions. Belshazzar is clearly proclaiming that the God of Judah and his kingdom is weak insignificant and subordinate to the gods of Babylon. This is essentially to spit in the face of God. And so how would the God of Judah respond to such a foolish challenge? 
Well, verse 5 tells us, Immediately the fingers of a human hand appear and write on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. Now, although Belshazzar does not understand what this means or who is doing the writing, he understands this is a warning. And so he is alarmed. His face drains of its color. He panics. He's anxious. He's so anxious he can hardly stand. His limbs begin to tremble and grow weak. And his knees begin to knock together. And so, as his ancestors had done before him, he calls all his wise men together to interpret the writing on the wall and offers whoever can interpret it to be third in the kingdom. However, none of them know what the writing means or who the message is from. But those who know their Bibles would already begin to suspect that this is a message from the God of Judah who he had just challenged, that this is a proclamation of judgment. First, of course, Belshazzar's blasphemous disdain for the God who held his life and breath was made evidence by his sacrilegious and even idolatrous use of the Jerusalem temple vessels. But second, and maybe less obvious to us, is the reference to finger writing on the wall. Throughout Scripture, even though God is spirit and has no body, again and again it describes the finger of God. In Exodus 8, the plagues are described as the finger of God. In Exodus 31, the two tablets of the covenant are written with the finger of God. In Psalm 8, the psalmist would declare, The heavens are the work of your finger. The point is clear enough. What seemed insignificant to Belshazzar, the vessels we took out of a temple that were clearly inferior to our gods, was actually holy and set apart as precious and special by a holy God. And this is the consistent pattern of God in his kingdom and in his gospel. What in the world's eye seems small, insignificant, and weak is in God's eyes holy, precious, and powerful. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus would ask, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants. And puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. As we saw in Daniel chapter 2. At first the kingdom of God is like a stone, a little pebble. But then it becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. The kingdom of God starts out small. So small in fact it seems imperceptible. It's unnoticeable. It's the unnoticed invitation to dinner for a neighbor. It's the inconspicuous commitment to meet weekly for coffee, to read and discuss God's word with a friend. It's in the hidden confession of sin to a trusted sister. It's in the unobserved kind word given to a grieving brother. It's in the unseen mercy to a person you meet in need. And because all these things can be so easily missed, it becomes very easy to despise and dishonor, at the very least overlook, the very real ways the kingdom of God is advancing among us. And yet it's these small and easily missed moments that are precious in God's sight, that are holy and special. And it's what paved the way for the growth of the early church to slowly take hold of the entire ancient Roman world. The kingdom of God is not like the kingdoms of the world, marked by fanfare, Power, influence, and entertainment that can capture and grab the attention of crowds. Yet this is so often what our hearts are drawn to, even as Christians. We want to see God do large things famously as fast as possible. 
We're tempted to evaluate our fruitfulness primarily, if not exclusively, through what can be easily seen, observed, and evaluated. Butts in the seat and money in the bank. Yet we know that ultimately... It is only God who can provide for us financially. It's only God who can draw people to himself. As Paul would later write, I planted Apollos water, but who gave the growth? God gave the growth. And so this is why we as a church commit ourselves to what people have called the ordinary means of grace. We're not trying to be flashy. We're not trying to draw a big crowd, though we would welcome it if the Lord provides it. Instead, we're committing ourselves to ordinary practices that are not flashy, but that God has promised he will bless. And we trust that he'll bring the growth. And so we read the word. We confess our sin. We preach the word. We pray for one another. We minister the word one to another. We gather for worship. And as the Lord gives opportunity, we speak the gospel with clarity and boldness to the lost. And we do all of these very ordinary, unnoticeable types of things, trusting, hoping, praying that the Lord would use these ordinary means to produce supernatural results, resurrecting the spiritual dead to spiritual life, turning the spiritually weak into the spiritually mature. And this is how God's kingdom works. It appears insignificant, ordinary, just like those vessels that have been buried in a closet for years in Babylon, but actually are precious to God and blessed by God. And yet not only does the kingdom begin small and then grow into a great mountain. But this is also how God has accomplished his work for us in Christ. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The cross is foolishness to the world, but it's the wisdom of God. The cross is weakness to the world, but it is the power of God. Who in the world has ever heard of a suffering king? Who's ever heard of honor coming through shame? And yet this is what Jesus accomplished. He was crowned king when he was crucified on the cross. By taking the shame of our sin, he gives us honor. He was crushed for our sake so that we might have peace. And God did it this way so that we might not be able to boast in ourselves, but only boast in him. Our God, whose power is made perfect through our weakness. So, dear brothers and sisters, if one of your anxieties today is about the apparent weakness and insignificance about the church and perhaps even our church, I'm praying and have been praying that you would be infused with a new kind of hope. Though the kingdom of God and his church at times may seem frail, weak, and holding on by a mere thread, biblically, she is holy, she is precious. And she is totally secure, having been bought by the precious blood of Jesus. And what's true of the kingdom of God, what's true of the church, is also true of our church. I know we are small and unimpressive. I know as you look around, we could probably use some paint. We could use some new carpet. We could probably do those things to be more hospitable. But hear me, 
I could not be prouder to be your pastor. I know a dear sister who's been laboring to grow in her confidence to speak and pray in small group. I know a brother who has been working to invite and encourage friends to join us to experience intergenerational community. I know another person who's been building the courage to initiate an evangelistic Bible study with a non-believer. I I know another brother who's fighting as hard as he can to be free from his enslavement to sin. I I know precious senior saints who are looking to invite younger people to join them in reading God's Word. I know of another who's invited several to gather weekly to pray. I know of another still who is learning to be patient in difficult relationships as they hear God's Word preached. I know of another still who's seeking counsel on some of life's most significant decisions. I know many of you are seeking to encourage me to know that you are grateful that I'm your pastor. And I could go on and on listing the ways that are easily missed, that are easily unnoticed, that appear insignificant. And yet God is at work in and through you. So Northwood, I am burdened for you to see our church The way God sees our church. Though we're like a mustard seed. The smallest of seeds. God is working to make us into the kind of community. That would be a source of rest and refreshment for all who would draw near. Though we're like that little stone that seems so unimpressive. God is using our church along with many other faithful churches. In order to fill the whole earth with his glory. Though we are like the holy vessels stolen from the temple in Judah, taken back to Babylon, seemingly defeated, seemingly insignificant. We are precious in the eyes of the only one who matters. And in God's economy, what appears small, weak, and unimpressive will actually be used all the more to demonstrate the glory and goodness of God. After all, only God can use what is weak, frail, and fragile to accomplish something great for his glory. So why should we hope in the kingdom of God more than the kingdoms of men? Because even though his kingdom appears insignificant, his kingdom is more precious than it appears. Second, we see in verses 10 through 23, we should hope in the kingdom of God more than the kingdoms of man because history has taught us that God rules the kingdoms of men. Because history has taught us that God rules the kingdoms of men. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to simply summarize this section. But in the aftermath of the failure of Babylonian wise men, one more time, the queen of Babylon, almost certainly Belshazzar's mother, comes into the banqueting hall to urge Belshazzar to call upon Daniel to interpret the writing on the wall. And she knows that in Nebuchadnezzar's day, when time after time the wise men failed to interpret the dream Nebuchadnezzar needed interpreted, Daniel was able to do what no one else could do. And so... Belshazzar summons Daniel into his presence, but instead of treating him with respect, he treats him with contempt. He describes Daniel as an exile from Judah, pointing to his status as a slave rather than as a respected member of the king's council. Instead of acknowledging the gifts Daniel did have, he questions his ability. Nebuchadnezzar, who in previous chapters had said, I know, I know all these gifts, talents, and skills are in you. Belshazzar says, I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you. I've heard you can give interpretation solve problems. And instead of humbly asking for Daniel to interpret the writing, he says, if, questioning once more whether he can even do it, if you can read the writing and make known its interpretation, 
You shall be clothed with purple, of chain of gold around your neck, and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. And in Daniel's eyes, this is precisely the problem. Belshazzar should have known better. And so Daniel responds by telling the king, keep your gifts, but I'll still interpret this dream for your sake. And yet, Daniel begins not by interpreting the dream, but by recounting the history of Nebuchadnezzar. He points out that God had given Nebuchadnezzar such greatness and glory and majesty that all the peoples trembled and feared before him. Nebuchadnezzar was able to kill whom he willed, was able to keep alive whom he will. He was able to raise up whom he will or humble whom he would. And yet, despite all this greatness, when Nebuchadnezzar acted proudly before God, Daniel reminds Belshazzar that Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by God. As we saw last week, he was driven from men. He became like a beast, living like an animal. And all this continued until Nebuchadnezzar recognized that God rules over the kingdom of men and sets it over whoever he wills. And this is what brings us to the problem in Daniel's eyes. Look with me specifically at verse 22. He says, And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. Though you knew all this. See, Belshazzar knew that Nebuchadnezzar had been humbled for his pride before God Most High. But he still lifts himself up against the Lord of heaven. Belshazzar knew that the Most High God rules the kingdoms of men, but still dishonors God by profaning the vessels from God's temple that were holy and precious. Belshazzar knew that God held his breath and his ways in his hands, yet he praises the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or know. And yet he refuses to honor God. What a clear reminder to us that having access or even having the right information does not guarantee the right response. Belshazzar knew all that had happened and yet did not humble his heart. We live in an age where we have more access to information than ever before. Let me just say, mere access to information is not going to change us. It will not make us wise. Even having knowledge, not just access to it, but actually possessing it, will not make us wise. And yet if access to information and actual knowledge doesn't move our hearts, doesn't transform us, in the Lord's eyes, it's worthless. It's valueless. Yet as one commentator points out, our Western culture assumes that knowledge will bring about required change. The knee-jerk reaction to almost any social problem seems to be something like this. Well, we must educate the people. And this often means we throw money at it, we construct bureaucracies to oversee it, but it's built on the assumption that education, that knowledge, will bring transformation. If people only know what happens when they don't use seatbelts, then. If people only know what drugs will do to them, then. And this way of thinking, this way of thinking that education, knowledge will transform the individual, has seeped into the church. Where Christians treat faith in Christ as a mere intellectual agreement. Many Christians suggest if you merely agree with the truth, I'm a sinner, that Jesus was the Son of God who died for my sin and rose from the grave, that then you'll be saved. But the scriptures are clear. The demons believe that and they shudder. And yet they are not going to experience eternal life. They will be damned. This is why I love the way our statement of faith describes what faith in Christ looks like. 
The very last article of our statement of faith says this. We believe that God commands everyone everywhere to believe the gospel. How? By turning to him in repentance and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. This makes it clear that faith or trust and repentance are really two sides of the same coin. While biblical faith certainly understands the facts of the gospel, Jesus died for our sin, rose from the grave, and that if we trust in him, we can have life, it also actually involves trust, not just affirming that's true, but resting in Christ rather than our works, treasuring Jesus more than anything else. And when we love Jesus more than anything else, we're glad to give up our sin. We're glad to give up our idolatry. We're glad to surrender our foolishness. Why? Because Jesus is more valuable to our hearts than anything else. And this is not works righteousness, as if our salvation depends on our works. Rather, it's the recognition that the grace that produces a faith in Christ also produces a repentance that leads to good works. The Apostle Paul would put it this way in Ephesians. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Why? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Or a historic way of putting this that I find so helpful is that we are saved by faith alone, but that the faith that saves is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Though knowing the right things should lead us to worship God, love God, honor God, and obey God, it doesn't always. And Belshazzar is case in point. And what's true for Belshazzar is true for us all. Paul writes in Romans, What can be known about God is plain to us because God has shown it to us. And yet he goes on to say two verses later, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal mans and birds and animals and creeping things. And although no one has any trouble seeing how Belshazzar and his actions is clearly dishonoring God, exchanging the truth of God for a lie, we have much greater difficulty seeing blasphemy and sacrilege in our own actions. Many of us probably don't give much thought to the possibility we might be treating God and what rightfully belongs to God inappropriately. We go to church, we read our Bibles, We sing worship songs and even put money in the offering. We would never dream of swearing in God's name. And we certainly would not deface church property in any way. But blasphemy and sacrilege are bigger than that. And our actions, we blaspheme God, even if we say we believe in God, by living like practical atheists. Living as if we're in control of our lives, God's not. Living as if God doesn't actually exist. We blaspheme God by making God into an image that is more acceptable to us, trying to smooth out his rough edges, trying to make him safe. We don't have to look too far to see contemporary misuses of God's word that look eerily similar to Belshazzar's profanation of the holy vessels. The most obvious way we do this is when we read God's word, store up the right information, but don't put it into practice. You rejoice in the grace you've received in Christ, and you're not gracious or patient toward other people. You celebrate God's sovereignty. You know he's in control, but you're still anxious about results and outcomes in our nation, in our church. 
or in your children that you cannot control. You delight in God's plan to bring glory to Jesus' name among the nations, and yet you personally are not investing in a few people to disciple people. All this is ways we hear God's word, we get the right information, and yet we're not transformed by it. And if you're not a Christian this morning, you're tempted towards a similar sort of danger, to think that if only God would reveal himself in more clear ways, then you would believe in him. But again, Belshazzar shows that even if he knew what God had done, it still wasn't enough. He's a living example of the rich fool we find in Luke 16. After dying and experiencing judgment, the rich fool pleads with Abraham, send back a dead person to my family. Tell them what they'll experience, and then they'll believe. And Abraham's response is revealing. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich fool pleads, no, no, Father Abraham. If someone goes to them from the dead, then they'll repent. And he says to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And here's what this parable and what Belshazzar teaches us, particularly if you're not a Christian this morning. You may think that what you need is more evidence from God. That if you could see a literal miracle, that would be enough. Uh, More knowledge would be enough. But listen to what Jesus says. If you will not listen to the prophets, then even someone rising from the dead will not be enough to convince your heart that Jesus is real, that Jesus is living. And that's exactly what we have in Jesus. Though many have tried, no one has been able to provide a better explanation for how the early church got started than the fact Jesus rose from the dead. So if you're not a Christian and one of your hang-ups to becoming a Christian is simply that there's not enough evidence for Christianity, I plead with you to consider two questions and take one step. The first question is how much evidence do you think would be enough? And is that kind of evidence even reasonable to expect? Second, consider the alternatives you're putting your faith into. Are you requiring the same amount of evidence for those beliefs as you do for Christianity? No one can believe everything at no one can doubt everything at once. You must believe in something to doubt something else. And so why do you doubt Christianity, but not doubt the other things that you believe? So I plead with you, don't just doubt Christianity, doubt your doubts. And third, the step I'd invite you to take is to then explore those doubts and questions with someone else. I or one of our members would be glad to talk with you more about the things you're wrestling with, the questions and objections you have to Christianity. But the message to the rich man is essentially the same message to Belshazzar. We have all that we need to know both that Jesus rose from the dead and that he is the one reigning and ruling over the kingdoms of men right now. And so the only question is, will we listen? Will we hear him? Will we trust him? And please hear me. It is better to learn from the consequences of someone else's foolish choices than to choose foolishness and experience those consequences for ourselves. So please learn from what history has taught us. Learn from what we find in the scriptures. We should hope in the kingdom of God more than the kingdoms of men because history has taught us that God rules the kingdoms of men. Third, look with me at verse 24. Daniel now continues on to the interpretation. 
Then from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Here we see we should hope in the kingdom of God more than the kingdoms of men, because God is the ultimate judge who gives the kingdoms of men to whomever he wills. God is the ultimate judge who gives the kingdoms of men to whomever he wills. So finally, Daniel turns to the interpretation of the writing on the wall. And for the first time, we learn what was inscribed on the wall. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. And from this, we can get a sense for why everyone was so puzzled by the meaning. These words describe different weights and balances used for weighing precious metals. In English, this would have been like reading something like pound, pound, ounce, half pound, which is obviously not a meaningful message. But because of how ancient languages work, these nouns could also be interpreted and understood as verbs. And God reveals to Daniel that this is the way he should understand them. He should understand these as words saying numbered, weighed, and divided. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And yet, how does Belshazzar respond to this? As if nothing has happened. He gives Daniel all the rewards he had promised. And that very night, he's killed. His impenetrable city was invaded by the Persians. They take over and kill him. And if you're not a Christian, I want you to see in this an urgent plea to take advantage of the time God has given you to repent. As we saw last week, sometimes God will give you an extended time to repent. He gave Nebuchadnezzar a whole year to consider the warning and to repent, but he didn't. But in this case, Belshazzar has that night, and God's judgment falls upon him. And so the message of Scripture is consistently respond without delay. The Lord would say, today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. That would be my plea for you. You don't know how much time you have left. And so if your heart is being stirred by anything you're hearing today, please don't delay in responding. The God who reigns over the kingdoms of men and whose kingdom never fails created you to know him, love him, and worship him. But instead, we all have ignored him and rejected him. We've lived as we pleased, as kings of our own little kingdoms, rather than recognizing he's the king. And as a result, we deserve his swift judgment for our rebellion. But God, in his mercy and abundant grace, has made a way for all of us to be forgiven and restored to relationship with him through the perfect life of Jesus, through his death on the cross in our place, and through his resurrection from the grave where he defeated the power of sin and death. And so now, as you've heard again and again, he invites everyone everywhere to respond by repenting and believing 
by resting and receiving Jesus as Savior and Lord. And so if you're ready to do that, please, again, come talk with me after the service. Or if you're not ready, but you want to take seriously the urgency and want to wrestle with questions, talk with me or any of our members. We would love to walk with you through your questions. But the very night Belshazzar is killed, we also learn that Darius the Mede received the kingdom. And the very language of this last verse of the king's judgment and the transfer of the kingdom reminds us that all of this comes about by the sovereign hand of God. The king is killed. We don't know how it happened or who did it. Only that it happened according to God's sovereign judgment. And Darius doesn't take the kingdom. He receives the kingdom, implied, from God. And it's this glorious truth that I pray will give each of us hope for two different kinds of anxieties. First, if you're one who is prone to be anxious about politics, who will be elected as the next president, this passage teaches us that whoever wins the election this fall will be there according to God's sovereign purposes. And in that vein, it may be worth remembering what our denomination affirms and denies about politics. We write, We do not believe that the political means can establish the kingdom of God. But we do believe that God has appointed governing authorities to do good, and that for citizens in Christ's kingdom, King Jesus' rule and reign transcends all other citizenships and partisan ideologies and transforms how we live in the world. So by all means, we need to take our vote seriously and responsibly and vote wisely. Yet when we do so, we do so without fear, without anxiety, because we recognize that it is not politics that will establish the kingdom of God, but God who will establish the kingdom of God. And his kingdom has our ultimate allegiance. And so whatever the outcome of the election this year, we're going to trust that it's happening according to God's design. And that our God, as we learned last week, will always do what is good and just and right, which leaves no room for despair, no room for anxiety, but instead fills our hearts with hope. Because he is always working all things, all things, all things for our good and his glory. So again, whatever happens this November, we can trust him. And we can remain hopeful because whatever God's plan is for our nation, our future as his people remains incredibly bright. And so whatever happens to the kingdom of America, it happens according to the ultimate judge who gives the kingdom of man to whomever he wills. But the second kind of anxiety I want to address is one of the great anxieties of the human heart. That is, that we will be tried and found wanting. And the reality is, we ought to fear. Because we're all like Belshazzar. As Pastor David Helm writes, each one of us has not honored God as God. We've traded him in for what could be considered a wine of our own making. We have exchanged the Most High for delights that are lesser. And as a result, we're all subject to Belshazzar's sin. We're all found wanting. And without God's sovereign mercy, we're left to drink from the cup of his wrath. And yet the good news is that the God who knows us fully, who knows us better than we know ourselves, the one who judges us and finds us wanting, is also the same God who out of love and grace and mercy and the fullness of time sent his son Jesus to live the life we should have lived, to die the death we should have died, and then to be raised from the dead so that we might receive love, acceptance, and hope that we didn't deserve. What greater assurance 
And hope is there than that. That though we are worse than we could possibly imagine, that we are more sinful than we could possibly describe, and God knows all of that, that still, if we repent of our sin and trust in Jesus, the God who knows us better than we know ourselves will love us, accept us, and include us in his kingdom that will last forever. So this is what's true of you if you have trusted in Christ. You are clothed with Jesus' righteousness and perfection. You have become God's beloved son or daughter. You have received his spirit to make you like him. You are in his sight, holy and precious, without blemish or spot. Your heart will finally find rest from its anxiety because you have already been seen, known, and loved in Jesus. And finally, you are joined to a new family that together has the privilege of advancing his kingdom together until it comes in its fullness when Jesus finally returns. So Northwood, let us hope in the kingdom of God more than the kingdoms of men because God is the ultimate judge who gives the kingdoms of men to whomever he wills. Because history has taught us that God rules the kingdoms of men and because his kingdom is more precious than it appears. And it's these great realities that we celebrate as we come to the Lord's table together. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again, when he will bring this kingdom we've been talking about in all its fullness. But we delight in the good news that in Christ, our anxious hearts can find peace and rest and hope because we know that his body was given for us. We know that his blood was shed for us. So we're forgiven and cleansed and loved completely. And we celebrate that we who are many are made one in Christ and together have received a common mission to advance his kingdom until he returns. But before we come to his table together, Paul warns us that a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so before we come to the table in hopeful anticipation of the day when God's kingdom will come in all of its fullness, let's take a moment to examine our hearts before the Lord. And so first, we need to examine ourselves to see if we're in Christ. This is a meal for Christians only. And so if you've not repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus, I'd ask you to please stay in your seat and take this time to consider is what you're looking for Is the evidence you think you need to become a Christian really reasonable? And instead, consider the evidence we have that Jesus really rose from the dead. Second, I'd invite all of us to examine our relationships within the body of Christ. One of the biggest concerns that Paul has for the church of Corinth is the way that division is running rampant. Gossip, slander, hatred, moving forward without another, considering someone's, uh, their own preferences more significant than others. All these things run right through the church, and he warns them. And so we ought to consider our own relationships. Is there any forgiveness we've withheld? Is there any bitterness we're nursing in our hearts? And if there is, please stay in your seat and take time to consider Jesus and all he did for you. And allow his grace, his sacrifice to move your heart to be gracious to others. And then go and be reconciled to your brother or sister in Christ. And then third, we should examine ourselves for unrepentant sin. 
Now, we need to remember, we come to this table the way we come to Jesus. By grace, not by works. Not by performing our way to the table, but because we've been covered by the blood of Jesus. But the mark of being a Christian is that we repent of known sin. And so as I'm inviting you to examine yourself here, I'm not asking you to think about and list all the ways you've sinned in the last month and try to make a full account of that and confess all those things. But rather, instead to consider, is there any sin in your life you're holding on to more important than Jesus? Any sin you're saying, I'm not willing to let that go in order to follow Jesus more faithfully. And if that's you, I plead with you, take today to make things right, to let it go. Ask someone for help in fighting that sin and then come to his table for a fresh experience of his grace because his grace is sufficient for your weakness. So let's take a moment to examine our hearts. And if none of these things have prompted you to think of specific things, then you can use the questions on the screen as a simple way to reflect on what God has been saying to you through his word. How does God's choice to use what appears weak encourage you to hope in his kingdom rather than what appears strong and significant? Where has the right knowledge failed to bring about humility, worship, and obedience in your life? How does the unknown timing of God's judgment encourage you to take seriously his invitation to repent and receive his grace? And how does knowing God is in control of the rise and fall of kingdoms give you peace amidst the political turmoil of our day? Let's take a moment to examine our hearts.